You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that writes drunk and edits sober. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. Before we get into today's episode, there is a little bit of housekeeping. Oh, you're finally going to become the maid of the house? I've been waiting for this. I grew up watching Fan Drescher as the nanny. I always kind of wanted that. Wow, you want to try that name again? You want a second pass at that? <laughs> Fran Drescher. There you go. I'm going to stuff your head in the toilet and then we're going to call that clean. Depending on where, where you, what you listen to, where you listen... What other podcasts you enjoy, you might know this, or maybe you don't. I don't fucking know, but I'm going to tell you, we've joined the Brain Trust Brothers Network. Yay! Cool! With such shows as the Brain Trust Brothers show, which I've mentioned on here before, as well as Potter and History X, Field of Screams, and other cool shows of that nature. So, what does this mean for you, the dedicated Ono Lit Class listener? What does it mean? I don't know what it means, and I'm on the show. <laughs> Basically, it means none, none of the content is going to change. It means at the end of this episode, you're going to hear a little bumper letting you know that we are on the Brain Trust Brothers Network. It means that while you'll still be able to listen to our episodes by going to onolitclass.com, it won't lead to the shitty website that I've struggled to maintain over this time, but to a nice, clean, neat little uh, page on the Brain Trust Brothers website which will just be much more pleasant to look at. And also, more importantly, it means we can do cool shit now. Like, we are going to open up a merch store, and we're going to have things for you to put on your body, or on receptacles that you drink beverages out of, or on things that you stick on other surfaces. And I designed a lot of them myself, and I think they came out pretty fucking cool. I don't know. RJ, you want a second opinion on that? Yeah, they came out pretty cool. Thank you. And so I'm really, really excited to be able to share that with you guys soon. And we're putting together like a Patreon and all these things that will give us money, which is neat because we don't have a lot of that. And that will help us continue to make even more cooler things for you guys because we want to make cooler things because God knows you're not going to put up with this for forever. But so that's that's the big announcement. And we're just we're jazz as fuck about it. And so look forward to being able to give us your money in exchange for cool stuff. But, you know, this this grade A, A-plus premium content will always be 100% free and sexy. Both those things. All right, now let's get into the episode. Today we are going to be talking about the mother of all required readings, really. The, the quintessential assigned book that you probably had to read and your mom had to read and your third cousin had to read. I'm talking, of course, about Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Some people don't have moms. It, it was a metaphorical mom. They have two penguin dads. I want two penguin dads. Like, in, in addition to my regular family, I also want two penguin dads. Really, who wouldn't want two penguin dads, I ask you? People who don't like Tango Makes Three. Well, fuck them. Anyway... Speaking of dads, this book is is really about sort of the ultimate dad, Atticus Finch. Okay. The, the majestic, angelic uh, lawyer man. See, this book should speak to you, I would imagine, more than Don't dox uh, me. other people, RJ. We've talked about the fact that you're a lawyer on the show. All right, dox me. In fact, you even talk about the fact in Things Fall Apart that you used, that you quoted the book in your job interview to be a lawyer. Yeah. Every semester I teach... Uh... <laughs> writing which i just began another term this week i quote chenoa chebe and i throw it at him and they all nod their heads and have no idea what the hell you're talking about i got a little powerful i'm like that's chenoa chebe here's his backstory a bit and i throw a quote at him and i tell him they have to become the lions i see yeah Feel or rather inspired. they have to become the hunters they don't want to be the lions. no like you you're just giving all kinds of mixed messages it's here. true lions they hunters. want to become they got to become the hunters 
But anyway, so I would figure, as a lawyer, so, that this book would resonate with you in particular. I'm not a loser. I don't lose cases. I win cases. <laughs> he loses because of racism, though. Can you imagine my surprise when, in researching this book, I found out he lost? I've never read this book. How have you never read To Kill Spoilers. a Mockingbird? He loses. This blows my How mind. How have you never read To Kill a Mockingbird? The closest I've ever come to seeing or reading To Kill a Mockingbird... <sighs> Are the clips they show in the movie Vanilla Sky? Jesus Christ! Since Tom, you have two degrees in English. Tom Cruise's character sees Atticus Finch as a father figure, and that's what he imagines. What's the act in his mind? He I don't remember. I saw name. I saw Vanilla Sky once with wow. you, and I was pretty much only focused on um, pretty girl. It was Penelope Cruz and. Penelope Cruz. And Cameron Diaz. Yeah, Penelope Cruz. Tom Cruise sees Atticus Finch's father figure because if you'd ever read the, a fucking book in your life, you know that Atticus Finch is America's father figure. A loser? No, we win. <laughs> we're winners. No, we're not. Yeah, but yeah, no, I had to do, I had to read it and we watched the movie. And my ninth grade teacher, who is not to be confused with my 11th grade English teacher, who's the one who assigned us the crucible and the great gatsby and the scarlet letter all under the banner of no you'll have fun these books are sexy uh my ninth grade english teacher almost orgasmed every time gregory peck was on screen during the movie but uh, see that's that's the strongest thing that i took away from reading that book (laughs) from my experience there uh, we'll get to that later. Is he particularly good looking? I mean, I he's don't okay. Think, yeah, I, I think he kind of looks like... Clark Gable's way better. Clark Gable is, is very handsome. I, I, he's what I would picture like Clark Kent. Like a quintessential sort of Clark Kent looking man. I don't get why people cream their pants over Gregory Peck. So, To Kill a Mockingbird is assigned so much and lauded so much because it manages to do a lot of very impressive things. It tells a compelling coming-of-age story, a microcosm of racism in America about justice and fairness and sort of the lack of that that can appear in the world, about the importance of sort of having a strong moral compass and, you know, and doing the right thing as you see the right thing. And and, um, it manages to kind of filter all of these really big concepts through the voice of a very young girl and it it does it very well and this was harper lee's first shot out the gate first book and last book one and done she's like all right i'm gonna give this book writing thing a try and it was like nailed it crushed it i'm done now i'm gonna rest on these laurels for evs which you know what you go girl hashtag goals so now harper lee born april 28 1926 died february 19 2016 better known by her pen name harper lee or as her friends called her as long as you consider me one of her friends despite me never actually meeting her you make that assumption with pretty much everybody anyway why stop now harpsichord general lee you are so full of shit or hgl for short harpsichord general lee now you're just fucking reaching all right, so Harpy. Fine, I'll take it. <laughs> she was born in Monroeville, Alabama. She was born to mom Frances Cunningham, whose maiden name was Finch, and dad Amasa Coleman Lee, better known as A.C. Lee. I'm going to need to look at that. Amasa. Amasa Col- what the fuck kind of name is Amasa? Well, no wonder he went by A.C. She was the last of uh, four children the couple had. Now, Harpsichord was given the middle name Harper by her parents to honor the pediatrician, Dr. William W. Harper, who saved Harpsichord. Man, I can't Stop Harper. calling her fucking Harpsichord. <laughs> I thought you were just, oh, yay, yay. Who saved Harpies. Fine. Older sister, Louise. The first name she never really used, Nell, was her grandmother's name spelled backwards, which would have made her name Ellen. I figured that out all on my own. Look at that. You're so clever. Also, she used the names of literally everyone in her family and her world. Oh, we're going to talk about characters, that. Except Amasa, I guess. <laughs> she, we're going to get to this. She's okay. not a very inventive writer. I suppose. It's still easy. Mama Lee Finch was a homemaker, and Daddy Lee 
was a little of everything. He was a newspaper editor, a proprietor, a lawyer, and even an Alabama state legislator. Though for the majority of his working days, he stuck to being a lawyer. Perhaps, in his best-known case, A.C. Lee defended two black men who were accused of murdering a white stockkeeper. Now, this being in Alabama in the early 20th century, and A.C. Lee being white, he caught a lot of shit for defending the two who happened to be a father and son. Daddy Lee lost a case, and both men were hanged for the murder. Unlike a lot of the authors we focus on here at Ono Lit Class, Harpy's education started in and continued through the American public schooling system. See, we used to produce great writers in our school system at one point. Hashtag Mawa. Make American writers again. Make America writers again? Yeah. Make American writers <laughs> Make again. Make American writers again. During her high school career, Harpy began to focus on literature, taking quite the liking to the subject. After graduating high school at the age of 18 in 1944, she went to Huntington College which was in Montgomery, Alabama. It was an all-female school, which means she must have been part of some crazy, sexy sleepovers. Oh, yeah, obviously. This is if the movies I watch every night are to be believed. Every night? Every night. She must have gotten sexually and mentally exhausted of all those slumber parties, however, as she transferred to the University of Alabama the next year. I mean, it's exhausting. The pillow fights, the gentle paddling, the secrets. The now 16-time... National Football Champion, University oh of Alabama. God, no one cares. Hashtag roll time. Hashtag no one gives a shit. Oh, there's a lot of people who give a shit. Hashtag roll dicks. <laughs> While at Tuscaloosa, Harpy wrote for the school newspaper and studied law and literature. Despite being pretty good at the whole writing and schooling thing, Harpy became disillusioned with school and dropped out before she ever completed a degree. Her father, not happy that Harpy wasn't all that big into school, sent her to summer school at Oxford University across the pond in England the summer Harpy dropped out of school. While there, she studied European civilization. Her dad thought that this might get her to want to finish her law degree. Turns out, it was just a waste of money, and she never went back to school, and she never finished that degree. What? You don't want to go to college anymore? Well, let's just send you to college in England. Let's have you learn about European civilization, because nothing's going to make you want to finish your law degree like that. Hashtag harpsichord was just another American dropout. Hashtag. That's not a hashtag. Hashtag Steve Jobs did it too. Is this is this going to be the thing? Oh, well. How many more fucking hashtags? <laughs> oh, we got a lot. How many more? Hey, you actually started it, so I'm just following. It's good that you started with it. So... It was 1948, Harpy was 22 and a college dropout. She then made the move a lot of her fellow American oh no lit class alumnus have made. She moved to New York City. There, she got a job in the prestigious field of airline reservations. Could you just even like swing your fucking arms in New York City without hitting a writer at that time? To be honest, she didn't move into Harlem, so she didn't live with the cool people. This is true. Well, hanging out with the chill kids. Yeah, like Z-Dog. And all the rest. And all the rest. I forget who we've done. Yeah, I know. Who was the other guy? Uh, Allison. No, not Allison. Yeah, I didn't Allison know. Allison was there. I think you, yeah. Pretty sure. Because didn't they go to some of the same parties? Yeah, Isn't that maybe. A thing? Do we remember anything from our own show? No. Well, we haven't, they haven't done James Baldwin yet, but I'm for sure he no. was there at some point. We yeah. haven't done Langston Hughes. Yeah, he was there. Well, she wasn't. She was white. Lived in Manhattan. Yeah, anyway, so airline reservations had nothing to do with writing, but it did help her pay the bills, and in her spare time, she focused on writing. In 1956, she found an agent, and then she had a friend do the most awesome thing a friend could do. Give her a year's worth of wages with the note saying, quote, You have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. That is the best fucking friend ever. Holy shit. I, I, I need me a friend like that. <laughs> I wish someone gave me a year's worth of wages so I could explore what interests me. World star videos. <laughs> I just want to be paid to wander the streets looking for fights just so I could yell, World star! Where is this coming from? What are you talking about? I love world stars. I watch every night. Those are the videos I'm talking about. I don't think there are any sexy slumber parties in the world star videos. Yeah, just like there's always bus a driver yeah, fights. There's always a guy in the background going, World star! <laughs> At the conclusion of the workless year, Harpy now... Who was this friend? 
don't know. Bob Bobson, like, does the name Bob matter? Bob Bobson. I'm just curious. Who's I, I, just like, here's a year's worth of fucking money. If it wasn't Truman Capote, it who wasn't. I'm led to believe is like the only friend she ever had. Yeah, it was somebody else. All right. And it was some name. I didn't note the name because it was a name and okay. there was like nothing else about it. Fine. At the conclusion of the workless year, Harpy, now 31 years young, delivered the manuscript for Go Set a Watchman to her agent who set it out to publishers. The manuscript was bought nearly immediately. The publisher who bought the manuscript said, quote, The spark of the true writer flashed in every line. However, it was not immediately published. In fact, the publisher did not think it was in any way ready for publication. The publisher said of the manuscript, quote, More a series of anecdotes than a fully conceived novel. Over the next three years, Harpy would work through a series of drafts until she finalized what was then renamed To Kill a Mockingbird. Later in life, uh, Harpy made it sound like she was kind of bullied by the publisher. She said, quote, I was a first-time writer, so I did as I was told. I mean, it worked out well for her. The publisher had a different take on the matter, saying, quote, When she disagreed with a suggestion, we talked it out, sometimes for hours. And sometimes she came around to my way of thinking, sometimes I to hers. Sometimes the discussion would open up an entirely new line of country. Oh, and as for publishing under the name Harper Lee instead of just her given name, Nell, Harpy was scared of being misidentified as Nellie, so she just went all in and changed it to Harper. The novel was an immediate bestseller and still remains one. More than 30 million copies are in print. In 1999, it was voted Best Novel of the Century in a poll by the Library Journal. I see. Who's Nellie that she was worried about being misidentified no, as? No, Nellie. Nellie? Just instead of Nell, she just didn't want to be people to like missay her name as Nellie. Like the huh. rapper. Like, I, yeah, I don't know if that was you making a joke about it. No, like, she, she, she was a concerned people were going to add an I into her name. And so she's like, well, fuck that. I'll just go by Harper. People can't mess that up. I guess. Yeah, no, she was, was just... It was a deep concern. She was afraid people were just going to see Nell and add an I somewhere. Okay. But whatever. That's whatever. her story. So maybe you picked up on the fact that there were a lot of autobiographical bits sprinkled into To Kill a Mockingbird. Like a, just a, g- a generous drizzle of Parmesan cheese. Harpy, like Scout, the protagonist, was a tomboy daughter of a small town Alabama attorney. Scout's best friend, Dill, mirrors Harpy's own childhood friend and neighbor, Philip Seymour Hoffman, portrayed <laughs> in real life by Truman Capote. I, th- I think I think you might have sw- switched those. No, no. Philip <laughs> Seymour Hoffman, portrayed in real life by Truman Capote. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> Capote was a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote popular works such as In Cold Blood and Breakfast at Tiffany's and will likely be a future subject here on Ono Class. It's only a matter of time. Capote said of his relationship with Harpy, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Lee, Harper Lee's mother and father, lived very near. She was my best friend. Did you ever read her book To Kill a Mockingbird? I'm a character in that book, which takes place in the same small town in Alabama where we lived. Her father was a lawyer, and she and I used to go to trials all the time as children. We went to trials instead of going to the movies. I mean, I feel like it loses a little bit of the punch when you don't say it in the Truman Capote voice, oh, oh, okay. but fine. So, I have to remember seeing Capote. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Lee. <laughs> no, 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 this is going to go terribly. Don't actually Harper's do it. Lee. Mother and father lived very near. Actually... She was my best friend. Did you ever read your book, The Kill a Mockingbird? Yes. I'm a character in that book. You know what? It's fucked. What? That's one of your better impressions. Well, I, I like that movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Shall I continue this quote in his own voice? Or should I leave it as I already read it? You can leave it as you already okay. read it. Now, the thing is... Harpy downplayed the autobiographical parallels in her book, acting like it was all some sort of fiction made up because she was the shit at all this writing stuff. I mean, she still was. You can take a bunch of elements from your own life and still write a shit book. But then why, like, hide the fact or try to, like, talk down the fact, like, dude, this is kind of nonfiction-ish? I don't know. I guess because maybe, like, it's... You get that thing where it's like, oh, is this like your life exactly then, huh? And maybe she wanted to avoid that where it's like, nah, my dad isn't Atticus or whatever. I don't know. I mean, 
Mary Mary Shelley uh, lied and said that she never went to the town of Frankenstein to be like, it no, came I to just her in a dream. Exactly. So I mean, like this this kind of pales in comparison to that. And so Capote pointed out, aside from him being a character in the book and her being her father's daughter, he also added about the character Boo Radley, quote. In my original version... Oh my god, no. In my original version of Other Voices, Other Rooms, I had the same man living in the house that used to leave things in the trees. And then I took that out. He was a real man, and he lived just down the road from us. We used to go and get things from the trees. Everything she wrote about, it's absolutely true. But you see, I take the same thing and transfer it into some gothic dream, done in an entirely different way. So there you have it, straight from Truman's mouth. Harpy was a lazy fucking hack. He, however, was an ingenious, inventive man who invented Southern Gothic. A woman riding on the coattails of a more successful man. Who would do such a thing? Right, Megan? Well, Tr- Truman Capote had some, uh, some grandiose views of himself, much like other men who spend a lot of their time in the company of talented women and feel that they have to exaggerate their traits. After Mockingbird, Lee led a generally quiet and reclusive life. She did travel to Kansas with Capote where he wrote in Colt Blood. She remained by his side throughout the process and the trials that the work focused on before that book was published in 1966. She generally declined requests for interviews. One of the few she gave in her lifetime was after the movie adaptation of Mockingbird came out starring Gregory Peck, who won an Oscar for his role. We're gonna get to that. Lee said it was one of the best and truest movie adaptations she had ever seen, and she later befriended Peck and his family. She gave Peck a pocket watch that belonged to her father. Even after Peck's death, she remained close to the family. Uh, One of Peck's grandsons, Harper Peck Vol, was named after Harpy. That's an intense name. Yeah. In 1966, Harper was named to the National Council of the Arts by LBJ. That same year, several school boards moved to have Mockingbird being taken out of the classroom for being immoral and depraved. In response, Harper wrote one of the few things that was published of hers after Mockingbird. Quote, Recently I have received echoes down this way of the Hanover County School Board's activities, and what I've heard makes me wonder if any of its members can read. Surely... Surely it is plain to the simplest intelligence that To Kill a Mockingbird spells out in words of seldom more than two syllables a code of honor and conduct, Christian in its ethic, that is the heritage of all Southerners. To hear that novel is immoral has made me count the years between now and 1984, for I have yet to come across a better example of doublethink. I feel, however, that the problem is one of illiteracy, not Marxism. Therefore, I enclose a small contribution to the Beetle Bumble Fund that I hope will be used to enroll the Hanover County School Board in any first grade of its choice. Sick burn. Holy shit, that's some fire. Yeah. Love it. Later in life, Harpy had to fight in court on her own behalf. In 2007, after she suffered a stroke, her son-in-law used Harpy's bad eyesight and bad hearing to trick her into signing over the copyrights associated with Mockingbird over to him, like a real-life movie villain. That's fucked. And later on, Harpy uh, sued the Monroe County Heritage Museum for selling Mockingbird memorabilia without her permission. Um, including a book of recipes called Calpurnia's Cookbook. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just so fucking tacky. So, So those controversies aside, the biggest one that Harpy faced was the publication of Ghosts at a Watchman. I want to save that for after, once everybody's got the context of To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. So, Harpy led a pretty quiet, reclusive kind of life. Um, She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2007. Lee died in her sleep February 19, 2016, after spending the remainder of her life living in either Manhattan or Alabama. Two very similar locales. The end. Till later. There's one thing we could talk about before going into the actual uh, book itself, and that is, do you think that Harper Lee was gay? Yeah, she has the, the Mo haircut. <laughs> what is the Mo? I don't, I don't know the character. I don't Disgusting. understand. The Three Stooges. 
Oh, lo- the like bowl cut. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty gay. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you look up pictures of her, she's pretty pretty butchy looking. She's never married, but because she was such a private person, all anyone can ever really do and has done is speculate. So. We unfortunately don't have anything juicy or sexy to add to it apart from Harper Lee was pretty butchy looking and she never married. She probably did not have sex with Truman Capote. Probably not, no. All right. On that note, (laughs) let's uh, get into To Kill a Mockingbird. So our main character is Jean Louise Finch. So you'll notice some some names there. Better known as Scout, a six-year-old girl whose main interests are contemplating the nature of good and evil and also punching. She lives in the sleepy redneck town of Maycomb, Alabama in the early 1930s with her nine-year-old brother Jem, their cook Calpurnia, who's also basically sort of raising them, her dad Atticus, and her mom, dead. We get some of the Finch family history about how they used to be slave owners and blah blah blah, the South, etc., Uh, and then focus in on the summer of 1933, when Jem and Scout meet another six-year-old named Charles Baker Harris, who has come from Mississippi to stay with his aunt for the summer, which is their next-door neighbor. Charles Baker Harris, this is uh, Truman Capote's character, tells the Finch kids to call him Dill, which is kind of weird. I mean, like, if it was short for Dylan or something, I feel like that would make a little more sense. Hmm. That's the logic for, for Dill Pickles on Rugrats. In case you're wondering. Yeah. Yeah. It's in store for Dylan. Jem is at least short for Jeremy, but you know, whatever. He's six years old. We already got a little kid named Scout, and we're about to meet a grown man named Boo, so I guess just go with it. I mean, when my brother was a little kid, he wanted our parents to call him El Chupacabra, so kids. Scout, Jem, and Dill become fast friends and spend the summer doing innocent, wholesome activities like playing pretend, acting out stories from books they've read, and trying to lure the local urban legend boogeyman shut-in out of his house. Kid stuff. Yeah. Yes, this is Arthur Radley, a.k.a. Boo, so named by the townsfolk for being a ghostly, mysterious, potentially cat-eating recluse. We learn that Boo got into some kind of trouble with the law as a teenager, and that his father essentially put him under house arrest forever, until Boo, at this point a grown man in his 30s, stabbed his dad in the leg with a pair of scissors. He must have had it coming, though, because his dad still had Boo stay in the house. Eventually, Boo's father died, and his older brother Nathan moved in, but Boo still remained, unseen, hiding, except for when, according to the neighborhood gossip, he wandered around at night, taking part in the previously mentioned creeping and cat-eating. This definitely sounds like a dude you'd want to try to annoy to the point where he'd have to leave his house to deal with you. So Dilger, Dilger, Dilger. So Dil dares Jem to knock on the door of the Radley house, but he only manages. Knock, knock. What was that? I knocked. You knocked. I'm the man who knocks. Well, you know who's not the one who knocks? Who? Jem. He only manages to run up, sort of gently slap at it, and then run back as the shutters on the window gently rustle, and they're like, oh my god, oh my god, did you see that? Did you see that? Oh my god. Lee transitions from that high-octane excitement to the end of the summer as Dill goes back home and Scout is all jazzed to start school for the first time because she doesn't know any better yet and thinks school is going to be super exciting and awesome. Spoiler alert, it's not. Scout gets saddled with a teacher named Miss Caroline, a young woman from the comparatively big city, who has no idea how to teach a class of hick farm kids, several of whom are on their second round of first grade. You'd think then she'd be super psyched about Scout, who's already reading on her own and writing in cursive, but no. It's bad that Atticus taught Scout how to read, because he's not a teacher, and that's not right. Also, you're not supposed to learn cursive until third grade, so she needs to cut that shit out. It's amazing how much education has changed since then. This is a meaningful pause. Things continue to suck when Miss Caroline notices that a kid named Walter, who doesn't have any shoes... White? No. Black? Cunningham. Uh, he also doesn't have any lunch. She tries to but loan him... But he is the danger. She tries to loan him a quarter, and he refuses, and it's uncomfortable, and Scout makes it more so when she pipes up that Walter won't take it because he's poor and can't pay it back, and that Miss Caroline is inadvertently embarrassing the kid by highlighting his white trashness. Miss Caroline responds by making Scout stand in the corner, but when everyone leaves the classroom, Scout... In the spotlight? Losing her religion. Losing her religion. Uh, When everyone leaves the classroom, Scout sees Miss Caroline slumped over her desk and gets a glimmer of understanding that this woman is in way over her head. Because she's... Three feet, six inches tall. (laughs) I mean, it's never stated that she's not. 
Meanwhile, Scout decides that her getting in trouble is somehow Walter's fault and beats him up. I guess he just shouldn't have been so poor. Yeah, what a jerk ass. <laughs> exactly. Either way, uh, Jem stops her and invites Walter to come home for lunch with them instead, and Scout is all salty about it. Walter pours molasses all over his food, and Scout is about to shame him for that too when Calpurnia hustles her into the kitchen and is like, Six years old is way too young to be a judgmental dickhead, so maybe chill. Scat does not like being told to chill. They return to school, and things continue to go downhill when Miss Caroline spots lice on a nasty kid named Burris Ewell. She's like, please bathe, and then come back, okay? And he's like, nope. Because apparently, the Ewell children only come to school on the first day to satisfy what I assume is an extremely lax truancy officer. He takes off, and Miss Caroline just starts crying. And, like, dude, that's the biggest mistake a teacher can make. You can't show fear, vulnerability, or any indication of humanity. That's like blood in shark-infested waters. Anyway, the school day finally ends, and Scout is deeply disappointed in the experience. She tries to convince Atticus that this whole attending school situation is really just unnecessary. And then Atticus sends her away to England to Oxford College to study European civilization. Yeah. <laughs> school. These are suckers. <laughs> Going basically to babysitters for eight hours a day. See, it's I, crowd control. I know you're cracking wise, but like, no, that's, no, that's kind of that's the state of the American school system right that, now. That, that, I'm not wise cracking. That's what it is. Yeah, it sucks. I think we should put kids to work. No, that's not the direction uh, we're supposed to go with I that. I think it's going to be this week's <laughs> unscripted financing with RJ. No. Make kids work. <laughs> Child labor <laughs> financing with RJ. Anyway, she claims. Honest living. If. Burris Ewell doesn't have to go to school. Why does she? And Atticus is like, because I'm not going to let you grow up to be a shitty dumb hick, sweetheart. Also, side note, neither kid calls him dad or father or even daddy, but Atticus, which is just unfathomable to me. Like, if if I ever even had the balls to call my dad by his first name when I was a kid, he would have made sure it was the first and last time it ever happened. So Scout suffers through the motions of school. They called him daddy in the scenes we don't get. There you go. So Scout suffers through the motions of school, basically dumbing herself down to get Miss Caroline off her case. One day on the way home from school, as she's passing the Radley house, she sees some tinfoil stuck in a knothole in the tree and is like, neat, foil, but it's something even better than foil. It's me, too, many capotes. <laughs> I'm here in this tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's gum. Weird, strange, unattended gum. Oh, it was a condom. (laughs) Ew, gross. And you know Scout puts that shit right in her mouth because she's six and kids are dumb. Breakfast at Tiffany's. She, I'm not, no. Nope. Did you know he wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's? That was news to me. Yes, I knew that. I I, I, I know things. Uh, She shows Jem her special mystery spearmint and he has enough sense to be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Spit that out. And then on the last day of school... They find another piece of fucking Reynolds wrap in the tree, this time with two Indian head pennies that they decide to keep. And I had to look up what an Indian head penny was. I have those. Ever, you do? Yeah. I've never heard of that. Okay. They're, just, they're just old pennies with, like, Native Americans on the side yeah. instead of presidents? Yeah, I have them. I don't get why that's a cool thing. Well, they don't make them anymore. Yeah, it's, like, rare. <laughs> they worth money? No, oh, they're worth more than a penny. It depends on the condition. Like ah. Most uh, things in coinage... Mm. I don't know what that hobby's called. I don't know what the fancy word is. There's, I'm sure there's a fancy word. Something like with a P or an N or... Coin appraising with RJ. Let's look it up. Word. <laughs> Coin collecting word. <laughs> Numismatics. What the fuck? Numismatics. Numismatics. Is the study or collection of currency, including coins, tokens, paper money, and related objects. What a stupid name. I'm sure it's fucking Latin for something or other. Let's see stamps are. Oh, yeah, no, stamps, I know, is a weird one. Philately? Yeah. Philately? Uh, well, here, what is it? It's, um, yeah, phil- 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 philately, because people who collect stamps are called phil- philatelists. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll stick to my pneumonastics. <laughs> good one, good job. It's like gymnastics. <laughs> but anyway, who gives a shit? It's summer now, woo! That means the dill's back, and the fun times can begin. Like rolling around in a tire. Man, it sucks to grow up in rural Alabama. That's pretty fun. Yeah. I've done it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised that you have. It's fun. Shockingly, the tire loses its novelty pretty quickly, and they invent a new game, acting out Boo Radley's terrible life. Atticus sort of half pays attention to this, like, hey, 
You kids aren't making weird games based on imitating the traumatized shut-in next door, are you? No. Okay, cool. Continue. No. <laughs> Thank you, Sherman. Dill, as is the fashion with small boys, asks Scout to marry him, but then decides girls are icky and starts hanging out with Jem more, leaving Scout to hang out with another of their neighbors, Miss Maudie Atkinson, a widow who makes cakes and sasses people. She tells Scout that Boo Radley's dad was a religious nutjob and would yell that she and basically everyone else was going to hell, and that Boo seemed like a pretty nice, normal guy when he was a kid, so it was probably his dad's abuse that drove him crazy and therefore earned that scissor in the leg. Scout checks back in with the boys to find that they've upgraded from tap on the Radley's door and run away to use a fishing pole to jam a note in the window. The note is an invitation to go get ice cream. Because what grown man would turn down an invite, fish through his window to get some ice cream with two small boys? Don't answer that question. Atticus catches them and, you know, decides to do some parenting and is like, well, you just, just leave him alone and quit pretending to act out his life. You weird ass kids. Go read a book. But they don't stop being weird-ass kids. In fact, they do the opposite and sneak onto the property and peek in all the windows like a trio of tiny perverts. Yeah, that is. <laughs> You're gonna get some mileage out of that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Except then they actually see the shadow of someone and they freak out and they get shot at as they're running away. Also, Jim loses his pants. So, solid plan, all in all. Uh, they escape into a group of neighborhood adults out for a walk who comment that Mr. Radley, or Mr. Mr. Nathan Radley, Boo's older brother, was shooting at what he thought was a Negro in his backyard. Yikes. They're also a little concerned with Jem's lack of pants, but not that concerned, because if some of the other kids we've been introduced to or anything to go by, kids in Maycomb are usually missing at least one article of clothing. Jem does sneak back onto the property and manages to retrieve the pants just in case you're particularly invested in the fate of Jem's pants. They traveled. Which Harper Lee seems to assume we are. On Jem. <laughs> Not very far. No. And that was summer. Yep, that was it. Scout starts second grade, and it's just as dumb as first grade. Welcome to the next ten years, kid. Also, even though at this point the whole sneaking onto the Radley property debacle happened like over a week ago, Lee still isn't done talking about Jem's pants. New pants-related details emerge as Jem finally tells Scout that when he went back for said pants, they were folded and waiting for him, the tear in them stitched back together. Ooh. A crazy man had his hands all up in your pants, Jem. Yeah. Meanwhile, the tree with the knothole keeps giving out gifts, each one more weirdly unsettling than the last. A ball of twine. A broken watch. A spelling bee trophy and two figures carved out of soap that look like Jem and Scout. I'm pretty sure I've seen this episode of Law & Order SVU. SUV? Yep, SUV. That's why I said it SVU. From... Before they could start finding any fucking severed fingers or used underwear or something in there, the elder Radley fills the knothole in with cement, and when Jem asks him why, he's like, oh, the tree's sick, this, this cement is it's medicine for the tree. And Jem's like, bullshit. We fast forward to winter, where everyone's freaking out about snow, and Jem and Scout try to build a snowman, but there's not enough snow, and he's just like a sad dirt man. And then Miss Maudie's house catches on fire and burns to the ground in the snow. I don't know. Atticus makes Scout stay back by, you guessed it, the Radley house, while he and the other neighbors help fight the fire and save Miss Maudie's stuff. It's only afterwards that Atticus notices Scout has a blanket around her shoulders that she didn't before. In fact, it's only at this point that any of them notice this, including Scout. That's some sneaky-ass blanketing. They come to the conclusion that it must have been Boo, and I guess it's supposed to be sweet, but the idea of some guy managing to wrap you in a fucking blanket without you noticing is extremely creepy. He's good. Suddenly cozy. And now we reach the Atticus Finch Angel Lawyer part of the book. A kid named Cecil yells at Scout that her dad defends N-words for a living, there's a lot, there's a lot of N-words coming up. No. New York Knicks? <laughs> so this, this kid, C Cecil, Cecil, whatever, yells at Scout that her dad's defended N-words, so she beats the shit out of him, like you do, and then asks Atticus what all this N-word defending is about, and Atticus tells her, okay, first, we're nipping this N-word shit in the bud, like, don't, don't say that, and second, he says that he has been appointed by the court to defend a black man named Tom Robinson, who has been accused of raping a white woman. Atticus admits that even if Tom is innocent, it's a case he has no chance of winning. But still, he has to try. Because that's what lawyers do. 
They fight for justice, no matter what. And a little halo appears above Atticus's head. No, not not really, but, you know, you, you get the idea. Are you, are you feeling inspired? No. No? Because I know he loses. Spoilers. And winners don't lose. <laughs> winners don't lose. Meanwhile, it's Christmas time, and that means a visit from their Uncle Jack, Aunt Alexandra, and Cousin Francis. Uncle Jack is awesome and gets them air rifles. Aunt Alexandra sucks and tells Scout to be more feminine. And Francis really sucks and parrots what Aunt Alexandra has apparently been saying, that Atticus is an N-word lover who's ruining the family. So Scout falls back on her usual method of problem solving and beats the shit out of Francis. Afterwards, Scout overhears a conversation between Atticus and Uncle Jack about how Scout needs to control her temper because things are only going to get worse once the trial gets going, and she can't reasonably beat the shit out of every racist and make them because, uh, that's a lot of people, as it turns out. Then he tells Scout to go to bed, because he knew she was eavesdropping and wanted her to hear that conversation because he's filled with dad wisdom. Speaking of, um, we then get a section where Jem and Scout despair over the fact that, while he may, in fact, be filled with dadly wisdom, he's not a cool dad. Atticus is older than the other dads, and he doesn't play sports or build decks or various other dadly activities. He can't even teach them how to shoot their awesome new air rifles, though he does get to do the title drop, telling Jem not to shoot any mockingbirds, because they're innocent and full of song, so it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Symbolism! Mama's gonna get you a new mockingbird. Because Jem or Scout's gonna shoot it? Yeah. So then Calpurnia comes running up, yelling that there's a rabid dog tearing around the neighborhood. Everyone freaks out, and uh, this dude named Hectate, and now let's just take a moment to appreciate that very good name, Hectate, gets a rifle, and then hands it to Atticus. And Atticus sharpshoots the fuck out of that rabid dog. And apparently he used to win, like, marksmanship medals and all kinds of things, and just never mentioned it, because he's fucking Atticus Finch, and that's just how he do... And Jem and Scout have been properly shamed into appreciating their dad's coolness because guns. He wasn't a cool dad, but he can shoot a gun real good now. <laughs> At this point in the story, Scout is now nine and Jem is 12, which means he's starting to get all puberty-ish and obnoxious and moody. Scout in hair where he didn't have hair before. Basically. Scout asks Atticus and Calpurnia what the hell his problem is and whether or not beating the shit out of him would help. That's not a joke, by the way. She does ask this in the book, because as far as Scout's concerned, there is no problem a good ass-kicking can't solve. But they tell Scout that no, it's just best to leave Jem B as his body changes and makes him sweaty all the time. Also, Dill isn't visiting this summer, so Scout has basically no one to hang out with. Then Atticus has to leave for the capital for two weeks, so Calpurnia has to take the kids to church with her on Sunday, and it's kind of awkward because it's an all-African-American church. But the kiddos are accepted, and... They listen to the sermon given by the Reverend Sykes, during which he individually calls out people in the congregation for their sins, which is just fantastic. Like, hey, Steve, I saw you coveting Tim's wife. Cut that shit out. The Lord's watching. That's what makes it kinky, though. <laughs> I like it when the Lord watches. Yeah. Um, Watch me, Daddy. Ew. <laughs> daddy in the sky. Watch me, Sky Daddy. <laughs> Scout realizes for the first time that, hey, Calpurnia has a life and hobbies in things outside of taking care of the finches, and it just rocks her little world. Uh, the Reverend takes up collection for Tom Robinson's wife, Helen, and Scout learns that the woman who claims that Tom raped her is the daughter of Bob Ewell, the dude with the lice-ridden, unschooled children. She also asks Calpurnia what rape means, and Calpurnia's like, uh, nope, I'm not, you, that's an adequate question. I'm not dealing with that. They come home to find Aunt Alexandra waiting for them, and she informs them that she's going to stay with them while Atticus is, you know, in and out so much so that Scout can finally be made into a proper young lady. Scout does not beat the shit out of her aunt, but she probably thought about doing it. Aunt Alexandra is obsessed with the Finch family line and, like, good breeding and being better than everyone else and just really unpleasant in general, so that sucks. Atticus returns, and Scout again asks what rape is, to which Atticus answers, and I quote, Carnal knowledge of a female by force and without consent. Which, I mean, accurate, but probably still a little above a nine-year-old. For some reason, he can't seem to wrap his head around why Calpurnia might feel uncomfortable answering that. And in the, uh, the course of Scout's answer, Aunt Alexandra learns that Calpurnia took them to church and she flips shit and demands that Atticus fire her. And he's just like, no, fuck you. 
But Scout is still worried, and Jem tells her to stop driving their aunt crazy, and Scout responds by beating the shit out of him, because it's been a few chapters since she's gotten into a fistfight. She goes to bed and discovers a surprise hiding under her bed. The head of a crocodile. What? That's that's really weird and specific. Horse's head. Just, just the heads of various animals? Why'd you start with crocodile? Slenderman. Slenderman? Yeah, it's a Slenderman hiding under her bed, and she beats the shit out of him. Uh, it's Dill. Apparently- Pickle? No. Dill, Bill? Charles Baker Harris, Truman Capote. He's apparently run away from Mississippi. The fuck he managed that? Like, he ran away from Mississippi to Alabama on his own. He's, like, ten years old. Those are legitimately next to each other, though, so- Even- Okay, even if it's, like, a three-hour journey, how is a ten-year-old doing this? Well, either way. He came all the way from Mississippi to underneath Scout's bed- because he says his mother uh, remarried, and he feels like his mom and his stepdad don't want him around. Scout seems to think that she could just hide Dill under her bed indefinitely, but Jem, continuing his gross descent into maturity and adulthood, snitches to Atticus. But it works out okay, and Dill is allowed to stay with them for the summer. But before they can engage in any tire rolling or door knocking, Tom Robinson is brought to Maycomb. Specifically, to the Maycomb County Jail. That night, Atticus leaves the house with a light bulb and an extension cord and is like, I'm going out, don't ask me any questions, this isn't weird. The kids follow him, obviously, and find him standing guard outside the jail, reading under the light. Then, as if on cue, four cars pull up and a gang of dudes start making intimations that Atticus ought to take off, and that if he doesn't, bad things might happen to him. The kids break into the scene and Atticus tries to get them to leave, but Jem refuses, and then one of the men makes a grab for Jem, and Scout straight up kicks the man in the dick and wrecks him, because Scout is the coolest nine-year-old ever. Then she recognizes one of the men as the father of Walter, aka the shoeless poor kid who puts molasses on everything, and she's like, Hey, Mr. Cunningham, how's it going? How's Walter? Still eating food like a big old weirdo? And Mr. Cunningham has the decency to finally feel fucking ashamed of himself, and leaves, taking the group of would-be KKKers with him. Atticus is simultaneously freaked out, relieved, and proud of his kids. Scout has no idea what the hell just happened, but is pretty jazzed about getting to kick a grown man in the dick. As we all would be. Uh, the next morning, Aunt Alexandra spends breakfast being racist, and then Dill tells them that everyone in town is talking about how three kids fought off a hundred grown dudes outside the jail. But whatever. Anyway, it's time for the trial. By the time the kids sneak their way into the courtroom, there's no room for them on the white side, but the Reverend Sykes from Calpurnia's church invites them over to the black side to watch the proceedings. According to Bob Ewell, who Scout tells us is basically king of the white trash, he found his daughter Mayella beaten, claiming that to have, like, walked in as Tom Robinson was raping her. Atticus does some cross-examining, and it becomes pretty clear that Bob's probably the one who beat his daughter. And then his daughter, Mayella, takes the stand and falls to pieces under Atticus's questioning because she's 19 and clearly being fucking abused and roped into this. As a final flourish, Atticus makes Tom Robinson stand up, revealing that he couldn't have caused the injuries to her face based on, like, where they were on her face because his left arm is all shriveled and fucked up from an accident with a cotton gin. Whoops. The judge listens to all of this while literally eating a cigar. Lee makes sure to specify that he's straight up snacking on it like it's a pretzel or something. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I do that all the time. You just have a, you keep it around in a baggy little snack. Yeah, smoke with tobacco. <laughs> the judge tells Atticus to wrap this up, and he calls Tom Robinson to the stand. And we learn that Tom has been helping Mayla with random odd jobs around the Ewell home because he felt bad for how shitty her life was. She kept inventing new chores for him to help with, and he kept doing it because he figured she was just really lonely. And then she got him alone and tried to kiss him, only for her father to burst in screaming and calling her a whore, after which Tom ran the fuck out of there. The jury freaks out at the concept of a black man having the gall to feel sorry for a white woman, while the other lawyer, Mr. Gilmer, presses Tom, asking why he ran if he wasn't guilty. And Tom, presumably while giving his best, like, are you fucking kidding me face, says, look, everyone was going to think I was guilty literally no matter what I did. And then Dill cries, because he's learning that the world is a terrible, shitty place. Atticus's closing remarks are basically an impassioned plea for the jury to please just be cool for once and not a big racist pile of sweaty taint. Jem, bless his sweet, dumb baby heart, thinks it's obvious that Tom didn't do it, and so the jury will have no choice but to find him innocent, because that's how justice works. Right, RJ? Yeah. Yeah. You're a lawyer, you know that. 
Yeah? <laughs> Except no. Of course not. The jury delivers the unanimous verdict of guilty because humanity is like a seven-layer dip where every layer is diarrhea and hatred. Yay, justice. Yeah? It's Atticus's fault. Yeah? Yeah. Bad lawyering. Oh, but he did such a... They make a point of saying that he did such a good lawyering job. In fact, the, the African-American community still sends the Finch family, like, a whole bunch of food to show their appreciation for Atticus clearly trying his best. Jem has lost his faith in humanity, and even a cake from Miss Maudie can't fix it. And, I don't know, if cake can't fix man's inhumanity to man, then what can? Atticus tries to keep hope alive, saying there's still a chance to appeal and save Tom from the electric chair. Also, we learned that Bob Ewell, uh, that morning had spit in Atticus's face and said that he's a-coming for him. So, that's a thing. They all talk about justice and fairness and good and evil before coming to the conclusion that this kind of bullshit is probably why Boo Radley doesn't bother to leave his house. Can't blame him. Kinda seeing the appeal of, of the recluse life. And even and now we got Netflix. It's even better. I don't know what the hell he had to keep himself busy in there in the before times. Skin flute. Gross. Some time passes, and Scout is forced to wear a frilly pink dress and attend tea with Aunt Alexandra and her shitty mean girl buddies because Jem and Dill are off swimming and Scout can't come because they're swimming naked. Scout can't For some come. reason. Yeah, because she's into girls, not boys. So no matter how hard she rubs... Okay, nope, that's gross. These are children. Children masturbate. Um, we're not going to talk about children masturbating. Children love their <sighs> bodies. God gave them their bodies. Yeah, babe. but it's weird when adults talk about kids <laughs> loving their bodies. Well, I'm not loving their bodies. No, no, we are not loving their bodies. They can love their own bodies. Kids can go love their own bodies far away from any adults who might do anything to the, their bodies. Scout has to put up with stupid comments and stupid questions and stupid racism, and she's just about a thousand percent done with it and about to start doing some punching when Atticus comes home and announces that Tom Robinson has been shot dead trying to escape from prison. Remember when the book was about finding gum in trees and lost pants? That was nice. Summer ends, Dill goes home, and the gossipy neighborhood ladies claim that Bobby will respond to the news of Tom's death with an ominous one down, two more to go. Then it's time for third grade for Scout and seventh for Jem, and they pass Boo Radley's place and are also thinking fondly of the innocent days of lost pants. Life continues on, with the Ewells harassing Tom's widow Helen until they're threatened with jail time. Halloween comes around, and Scout is forced into dressing as a ham for the Halloween carnival, because reasons. Scout performs her role as ham, and her and Jem are walking home in the dark when Jem realizes that someone is following them. Jem yells for Scout to run, but she's still in her ham attire and falls down, hearing sounds of fighting, a crunch, and Jem screaming. Someone tries to grab her, but falls back, and as everything calms down... Scout sees a man carrying an unconscious gem, and on the ground, Bob Yule, smelling like booze and stabbed to death. R.I.P. Bob, we're all glad you're dead. Eventually, Atticus and the cops come, and Scout is de-hammed, and we see a big cut on the back of her ham costume that means that, like, her ham costume literally saved her from being stabbed to death. Oh, and also that the guy who came and saved her and Jem is Boo Radley. That too. He's pale and thin, and his eyes are described as colorless, which sounds terrifying. So he's powder. <laughs> no one knows what the fuck powder is. Was he able to get the spoons to stick together? No one knows what that is. Hey, uh, you don't know what anything is. We've got to start educating our listeners. <laughs> mm. And Scout says, hi, boo. And Atticus is like, let's maybe call the man who just saved my kids from being murdered by his actual name. We're going to call him Mr. Arthur. Also, it's decided that Bob Ewell fell on his knife. And died. Because fuck him. And so that way Boo is left alone. Scout thinks about all the stuff Boo has done for them. The weird tree gifts, the blanket, the mended pants, the saving from murder, and feels kind of shitty about the stories and games they built around his life. Then she makes Atticus read to her, and falls asleep as Atticus goes to check on Jem. And, uh, that's how it ends. It's kind of anticlimactic, but where can you go after a near-death ham-related ghost neighbor experience? The end. That's to kill the Mockingbird. So, we already brought up the iconic film adaptation starring the world's hunkiest question mark lawyer and world's worst whale hunter, if you remember uh, from our Moby Dick episode, Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. 
Yeah, just as, as America's greatest lawyer dad, apparently just inspiring generations of people to go become lawyers. In fact, didn't we have a discussion? I'm trying to remember, didn't you tell me that someone we know cited that as an inspiration? I don't remember. I feel like you were telling me that, that somebody said that they wanted to become a lawyer because of Atticus Finch, and then you laughed at them, but I don't remember who it was. Could have been any sounds anymore. really familiar. Well... And as we mentioned, uh, the movie was, like, a huge success. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and it won three. Best Actor for the Peckman, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. And while the relationship between authors and film adaptations is often, you know, not great, to say the least, we already talked about the fact that Harper Lee was super down with this movie and then became BFFs for Evs with Gregory Peck, even though he actually lost that fucking watch she gave him. That special ass watch that belonged to her dad. He super lost it. That's mean. That's and she sad. was she was just kind of like, eh, watch is a watch. And Gregory Peck was like, thank God. Yeah, I know. I'm like, whew. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was also the first movie Robert Duvall was ever in. He was Boo Radley. He'd go on to play such memorable roles as... Skip ba- and- Space Cowboy. No. You derailed the fucking good joke I was going to make. Space it's- Cowboy. It's Robert. Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Donald Sutherland, and James Garner. Who the fuck is Robert Duvall in it? Hmm. Maybe not. Fuck you. I literally just <laughs> named all the old fuckers <laughs> in Space Cowboy. Oh, excuse just me. Just so you can see that you were fucking wrong. He was in Deep Impact. Great. You know what Deep Impact is it? Space Cowboys. <laughs> I got the wrong space movie. <laughs> they don't even go to space in Deep Impact. They just space fucking... Space comes they, to them. Exactly. So, you might remember Robert Duvall from such memorable roles as Guy Who Keeps Making Offer to Play Scrabble in the Handmaid's Tale movie. So, there's also a play version that is annually put on in Lee's hometown of Monroeville, who uh, they have self-named themselves the literary capital of Alabama, for whatever that's worth. But, just like uh, how Harper Lee hated the thing about their... Heritage Museum selling, like, Calpurnia's cookbook and other fucking, like, memorabilia. She hated the play, too, and refused to ever attend. Which, like, fair. Now that just kind of leaves us with the, uh, sequel? Except not? Except companion novel? Except not? Let's talk about Ghost at a Watchman. So, we talked about some of the controversies and legal battles that old Harpy had to deal with in her life. And probably the biggest one and final one was the controversy dealing with Ghost of the Watchmen. So after her aforementioned stroke, Lee's health continued to deteriorate. Aside from being functionally blind and functionally deaf, there were concerns about her mental faculties. She lived in an assisted living facility and was cared for by her sister Alice. At one point, the family was trying to get Harper's affairs in order, and that's when they happened to go through some of her old property, and they found a manuscript for Ghost at a Watchman in a deposit box. There was a debate among those associated with Harper as to what to do with the manuscript. It seems like her sister Alice didn't want it to be published, believing it to be the initial early draft of what was edited and became To Kill a Mockingbird. Others, including Harper's lawyer, believed it should be published as it was the third book of what meant to be a trilogy and the planned middle shorter book just never happened to be written. Most critics seem to believe it was the original manuscript that Harper sent out that then became Mockingbird. If for no other reason, there are entire passages that are word for word the same between the two texts. That would do it, wouldn't it? Initially, the manuscript was held, but then when Sister Alice died... The announcement was made to the world that the manuscript was found and it was going to be published. Many speculate that the lawyer, Tanya Carter, was waiting for the sister to die to act as she was now in charge of Harper's estate. That is so shitty. Many parties were concerned that Harper was being coerced by Tanya Carter. So Alabama did an investigation concerning elder abuse. But in the end, the investigation found nothing and it was closed basically finding that nothing was done wrong and it seemed Harper understood what was going on and consented to what was going on and was completely fine with it. 
Thus, Ghost at a Watchman, for better or worse, was published. Ironic that the writer of one of the most positive depictions of a lawyer ever may have been strong-armed into publishing a work that she never wanted to be published in her twilight years by an unscrupulous attorney. How about that? There you go. So that's the controversy of a Ghost at a Watchman sort of coming into existence. The other major thing that people had a problem with was the fact that it took Atticus... America's perfect dad and made him just old and cynical and racist and and just weird and there's this sort of underlying sentiment running through the story that like the civil rights movement was a bad idea it's, it's very weird and it a, adult scout turns back to the south from New York again sound familiar coming back between uh, Manhattan and Alabama uh Jem's dead from a heart condition Dill is somewhere Calpurnia's son runs someone over with his car. It's just, it's very bleak. And a lot of people who, like I just said, like Atticus Finch, America's lawyer dad, being like a racist old bastard, upset a lot of people. Especially because, um, you know, if you sort of weren't aware of this whole kind of controversy of release and the fact that this was actually considered a first draft of the book... It was publicized as, like, the undiscovered sequel. So people were like, what the fuck? Like, what happened? What happened in between here? Rupert Murdoch bought the original publisher. (laughs) No, that's what happened. And so, yeah, people were pretty upset about that. One thing that I think is really interesting is the idea of, because this is technically the thing that came first, is the genesis of... Harper Lee, presumably, from what you were saying, with, like, a lot of help from her publisher, taking this very, like, bleak, distressing story, this very cynical story, and turning it into just this really powerful coming-of-age story that still has some really bad shit in it, but is ultimately very hopeful about humanity and about, you know, trying to believe that people are decent and upholding that decency in how you act. And so I think that's just really interesting that it's started as such a completely wildly different thing and became something much more, like, positive. Uh, but yeah, Ghost of Watchmen pissed a lot of people off. And then a year later, Harper Lee died. At that point, and we're at the point in the episode where RJ's leaning really far away from the mic in his chair because he's decided he doesn't give a shit anymore. So, RJ. So. To Kill a Mockingbird. I've done that once or twice. That's awful. They were delicious each time. Ew. What would you do with it? I don't kill. I mean, I'd want it to to sing, but if that mockingbird don't sing, presumably I'm going to get a diamond ring. The book, To Kill a Mockingbird, good or bad? Better than Ghost at a Watchman. I would hope so. So you you don't feel at all inspired to go out and law better now? Even if it's just to to do a better law job than Atticus. Yeah, why would I be inspired to do better? He didn't do good. He did poorly. So I guess, yeah, I do want to do better. I want to do better than Atticus did, and I do. There you go. Well, he devoted all of his energies to what everybody pretty much essentially wrote off as a lost cause and didn't expect him to actually try on. Then he lost. Yeah, well. Way to go. That's because people are fucking awful. Nope. Yes. Yeah, Johnny Cochran won. Okay. That's why I rhyme in my cases. See, what Atticus needed to do... He, he didn't rhyme it up to no. it. <laughs> when he stood up and saw the arm, he said, He has a claw, therefore he couldn't have broken the law. He's got no arm, couldn't have done no harm. There you go. <laughs> See, I think he would have won. <laughs> this is so bad. So, Megan. Yard. Atticus Fitch and his troublesome offspring. Your thoughts. So, I mean, I, I guess I've kind of come down, I've, I know I've come down sounding very positive in this episode, but I'm actually kind of apathetic towards it. But you know, as a first grade, I'm just like, yeah, this is good, or I fucking hate this. But it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I guess it's a book. Which is how I felt when I read it as a kid, uh, or a, a teen, I suppose. You know, that I can understand and appreciate all the things that it does very well and why it's a very important book culturally and historically. But it's just kind of like you read it and you're like, all right, yeah. I, I don't really have a lot of strong feelings about it. Although, I did not remember how much small child girl Scout Finch just like constantly beating the shit out of people, which 
is great. Like, that's fantastic. I can absolutely get behind that. She kicks a grown man in the dick. It's fucking rad. Anybody talk shit about her dad? She beats the living crap out of them. This tiny child is cooler than I will ever be. And that'll about wrap things up for us on this episode of Ono oh La Class. If you like the show, remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe. Shout your praise into the wind so that the Sky Daddy may hear it and carry news of it across this great land. You can follow us on Twitter at OnoLitClusPod. Uh, you can join the Facebook group for the love of God. Please, please join the Facebook group. It would make me so happy. It would make RJ happy too, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. So happy. You can listen to us on any and all podcast apps that exist in this universe and possibly other universes besides and at onolitclass.com and at brandtrustbrothers.com probably slash onolitclass i should look into that i don't know but you'll figure it out you're smart i believe in you i have faith um gotta have faith gotta have faith (laughs) today's pod pals are an especially special duo of dudes uh joey and carlos the hosts of a brand new show called Life, Death, and Taxonomy that gives you all the deets on the weirdest things that uh, walk the earth in the animal kingdom. I'm lucky enough to know these two goobers in in the meat space, and they're going to tell you a whole bunch of cool shit about, like, the mantis shrimp and whatever the hell kind of popcorn animal that you're going to hear about in a second. So, uh, just... Like, go ahead, go give them a shot. Give them a listen. You'll learn things. You'll learn dope facts to drop at parties. And I mean, really, that's like, that's why you listen to podcasts, right? Uh, Boy, I really do love campfires. Say, Joe, what do you think that sound is? What, the crickets? Oh, that's just Gryllus pensylvanicus chirping through a process called stridulation. That means to rub two appendages together. Wow. You knew that offhand? Man, I sure wish I could learn more neat animal facts like that one. Well, we have a podcast. Plus, I'd love to learn more about scuba diving spiders, 300-year-old sharks, and cat-like tree animals that smell like popcorn. What are you talking about? We cover all of that in our podcast. But, like, I wish there was some kind of show where I could learn about all of the amazing things animals can do. What are you doing? You know that's what our podcast is all about. Yeah, but come on, man. I'm I'm trying to do a promo thing here. Oh, okay. Go ahead and do your promo. (sighs) Never mind. The moment's gone. Just listen to our podcast, Life, Death, and Taxonomy, and subscribe on iTunes or a podcasting app near you. What do you mean, listen to it? I edit every episode. (sighs) Thanks, as always, to Best Day for our theme song, uh, the next episode will be... Oh! Oh, fuck! The next episode will be out on February 1st. You know why that's a big deal, RJ? One year since Inauguration Day? Ew, gross, no! One year since the very first episode of Ono oh Class. February 1st, one year to the day of talking about dead authors, giving fresh takes, and... Usually dead authors. Usually dead authors. Megan. Just being terrible about literature. So you have that to look forward to. And it's going to be rad as fuck. Like everything else we do. Obviously. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Why did I record the theme song? No, I wasn't going to put that in there. Did you splice words together to be No, I meant meant our intro that comes before the theme song. Welcome to Oh No! Well, now I know what's going in the outtake. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.